1: we go, episode 320 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Monday, May 23rd, 2022. It is day one of week one of Commander's OTA practices in the 2022 NFL offseason. You know, few things capture how sick and twisted we are as NFL fans, as marking the start of OTA practices does. I mean, you have something wrong with you. You have a screw loose if you are marking the start of an NFL team's OTA practices in an offseason. But what can I tell you? We're all sick and twisted. We all have screws loose. And here we are marking the start of Commander's OTA practices in this 2022 NFL offseason. OTA stands for Organized team activity. There are a variety of things that an NFL team does in its offseason that falls under the umbrella of OTAs, but what's starting on Monday for the commanders are actual OTA practices, which aren't fully padded practices or anything like that, but these are practices to varying extents. Uh, The batches of OTA practices for the commanders this offseason are May 23rd through the 26th, May 31st through June 2nd, and June 6th through the 8th. And then we get the mandatory minicamp from June 14th through the 16th. So we expect press conferences and reports and who knows what else on the Commanders this week and in the coming weeks. And of course, you should expect all of that to be covered right here on the podcast that is with you five days per week, out by the 5 a.m. hour each weekday, and often much earlier than that, The Al Galdi Podcast. It's good to have you with us. Hope that you had a nice weekend. It was hot. Yes, it was. Uh, That's Washington, D.C. area weather. Every year we go from 50 to 90, just like that. Zero transition. Uh, And perhaps adding to the heat being felt. By the owner of the Commanders, Dan Snyder, was something that came out on Saturday afternoon. NFL columnist Jarrett Bell of USA Today Sports reporting that Dan Snyder is in trouble as an NFL owner. And the reporting included multiple anonymous quotes from actual NFL owners. Uh, this is yet another sign, another indication that Dan Snyder might actually truly be going down, Uh, that what so many have longed for, for so long, the ouster of Dan Snyder as owner of the Commanders, the coup of the Danny, might, in fact, be going down. Now, we are not there yet, and truth be told, we may never get there, okay? Dan may well end up surviving and laughing like a hyena at all of us once again, okay? Pointing and laughing at each and every one of us, but I've gotten a kick out of some trying to downplay this report. I mean, was this report a seismic, earth-shattering, landscape-altering report? No, but this was a significant report. I'll explain why and give you my thoughts on the report. Next segment, uh, also on the show, the Jekyll and Hyde two-faced Nationals offense strikes again. I tell you, this Nats offense, when it's bad, it's awful as was the case on Friday night and Saturday night at the Milwaukee Brewers. But when the Nats offense is good, it's great, as was the case on Sunday afternoon at the Brewers. I'll talk about the Nats, of them losing two or three games at the Brewers, including Davey Martinez making some major lineup changes for Sunday afternoon's win, and Juan Soto on Saturday night making a pretty revealing admission. Uh, Also, we on Sunday got a Steven Strasburg update, and It was good news. Imagine that good news on Steven Strasburg. It feels like we haven't had that in forever. Uh, I'll discuss that and much more. And uh, we got to talk Orioles on this Monday installment of the Al Galdi podcast. What a weekend for the O's. If you're an O's fan, you're allowed to enjoy what's going on right now. Uh, A, the O's called up the phenom, the wunderkind, Adley Rutschman, B, the O's won two or three games against the Tampa Bay Rays at Oriole Park at Camden Yards, and C, the O's won each game in extra innings, giving the O's three wins in four games, with each win being a walk-off win. Could it be, might it be, that things truly are looking up for the O's off years? And I mean, I mean years of the team losing and tanking. Uh, You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the podcast at yahoo.com. Lots of tweets off the USA Today report on Dan Snyder on Saturday afternoon. Tweet from Dave. Dan is now accused of cheating the other owners out of some of their cut of money from home games. You can do almost anything, but don't mess with their money. A tweet from B: He'll never be out because he knows all the league skeletons and will turn stoolie if he's booted. It's not a money thing; it's a pettiness thing. With Dan, sorry, Mr. Snyder. Yes, B, make sure you call him Mr. Snyder. He doesn't like Dan; he prefers Mr. Snyder. A tweet from MTK: We keep getting smoke, but I want the fire. He seriously needs to go. Uh, I hear you. Much more on this next segment. Email from Jack L. on something having to do with Congress's investigation into the commander's workplace misconduct and financial scandal. So the Washington Times on May 11th came out with an article with the headline, quote, House Democrats probe of commanders team owner Dan Snyder blitzed by accusations of political bias, end quote. The article has to do with one of the people in Congress who has led its investigation into the commander scandals, Representative Raja Krishnamurthy who is the chairman of the Subcommittee on Economic and Consumer Policy, reads the article in The Washington Times in part, quote, Government watchdogs say Representative Raja Krishnamurthy of Illinois may have violated House ethics rules by agreeing to appear at a fundraiser hosted by the lobbying duo Mike and Tom Manatos." The fundraiser was pitched as an opportunity to huddle with Mr. Krishnamurthy and discuss how the congressional investigation could be used to force out Mr. Snyder. It's problematic under ethics rules, said Kendra Arnold, executive director of the Foundation for Accountability and Civic Trust. Anytime we see an overlap between congressional duties and political advancement, fundraising, or personal financial interests, it raises conflict of interest concerns. And so writes Jack L. in his email, Al, I would appreciate your thoughts on the article. Is it meaningful or meaningless? Also, if Snyder is forced out, i.e. forced to sell, might the reality be that the best offer comes from a buyer who would move the team, especially given that getting a new state-of-the-art stadium in our area is... May not be doable. Uh, and then Jack says some very nice things about me and the podcast. Thank you very much for that, Jack. So I think that the piece from the Washington Times was meaningful. I don't think that we should ignore it, but it is worth pointing out that Krista Morthy ended up not doing this event. You know, Politico wrote about the situation as well in a piece that came out on May 10th. Quote, Krista Morthy abruptly canceled a fundraiser after Politico approached his office with questions about the event. The issue, whether it was inappropriate for a pair of lobbyists, Mike Monados and Tom Monados, to explicitly invite donors to the event to discuss with the congressman the probe of the football team and its owner, Dan Snyder, linking pleas for campaign dollars to specific legislative actions is a no no, and Chris Namorthy's camp quickly acknowledged as much. The congressman is grateful that his efforts to stand up to some of the most powerful interests in Washington, from big tobacco to organizations like the commanders, has generated enthusiasm from the public and some of his supporters, a spokesperson for his campaign said in a statement. However, we did not authorize any correspondence or outreach conducted for this general meet and greet event for Raja's reelection campaign out of an abundance of caution, the statement added, this event has been canceled, end quote. Uh, look, this event was a bad look, okay, a really bad look for Chris Worthy, but he ended up not doing the event. The partisan nature of Congress's involvement in the commander scandals has always been undeniable, right? Democrats in Congress are for the involvement, Republicans in Congress are against the involvement, Dan Snyder is known to be a major Republican donor. All of those things are not coincidental, all right? I don't believe that the only reason that Democrats in Congress are in favor of investigating Dan Snyder is his politics, but I do believe that things would be different if Dan was a major donor to politicians who are Democrats. I do not think that Democrats in Congress would be as gung-ho about going after Dan as they are right now if he were a big-time donor to politicians who are Democrats. I think this works both ways, okay? And I also think that Dan is hoping like crazy for a red wave in the midterms, because if the House of Representatives flips to being majority Republican, then that's probably it for congressional involvement in the scandals. Trust me, Dan may start campaigning door-to-door for Republican candidates in the midterms, because the Republicans flipping the House likely would mean bye-bye, to congressional involvement in the commander scandals. And that might be bye-bye to the scandals altogether. Uh, as for a new owner of the commanders moving the commanders to another state, I have a very hard time ever seeing that for this reason, the Washington DC market. The Washington DC market is a top 10 television market. The Washington DC area is one of the richest areas in the country. Why you as the NFL would want to get out of an area like that would not make a lot of sense, okay? So to me, the NFL would not allow for a new owner to come in who is trying to move the commanders to say San Diego, okay? San Diego is fine and dandy. San Diego is not the Washington, D.C. area in terms of being a television market and in terms of wealth, all right? Point blank, period. And so that's why, to me, this thing that some have put out there over the years of maybe another owner would come in and move the team, I don't see that happening. Okay. And again, it's about what the Washington, D.C. market is. It is a substantial market, both in terms of population and in terms of money. And those two things matter a lot. Well, what matters if you are wanting to buy a new home in the Washington DC area is having the right real estate agent. And so that's why if you are wanting to buy a new home in the Washington DC area, you got to get with Kellen Hunt. Visit closeitwithkel.com. That's closeitwithkel, K-E-L-L.com. Book a call with Kellen Hunt to discuss your real estate needs and make sure that you tell Kell. That Al Galdi sent you. The DC area real estate market is hot. Homes are going under contract quickly after they are listed. And that and low inventory mean that if you're wanting to buy a home in the DC area, you need a smart realtor who can put together an offer that wins. This is where Kellen Hunt comes in. He wins. Kellen Hunt understands the market and he is here for you to listen to what you want and then get you what you want. No matter your age, family situation, or financial situation, Kellen Hunt can help you. Kellen Hunt is a real estate agent for real people. He has a wealth of knowledge when it comes to local neighborhoods, economical development, schools, market conditions, and all that makes the Washington, D.C. area unique. And Kellen Hunt is willing to put a portion of his commission back in your pocket. Yes, you, the buyer, get a piece of the action. Kellen Hunt knows what buyers like you are facing and he wants to help. So visit Close It With Kel dot com. That's close it with Kel, K-E-L-L.com. Book a call with Kellen Hunt to discuss your real estate needs and make sure that you tell Kel that Al Galdi sent you. You have nothing to lose. Visit close it with Book an introductory call with Kellen Hunt at close it with If you're trying to buy a home in the Washington, D.C. area, you will do well by going with Kel. Visit close it with and tell Kel that Al Galdi sent you. All right. So this episode of the Al Galdi podcast is from Monday, May 23rd. This Wednesday, May 25th, is the 23-year anniversary of Dan Snyder buying the Redskins. Yes, 23 years of the Danny. Uh, It was on May 25th, 1999 that Dan Snyder completed his purchase of the Redskins in FedEx Field, $800 million was the price, what was then a record price for a United States sports franchise. Well, here we are 23 years later. How have things gone over the last 23 years for our football team? Uh, Not so good. Uh, Well, happy anniversary to Dan uh, with what came out on Saturday. NFL columnist Jared Bell of USA Today Sports on Saturday afternoon reported that Dan Snyder is in trouble as an NFL owner. Now, uh, what does trouble mean? Well, Bell reported that some NFL owners are frustrated with Dan and might support an ouster of him, forcing him to sell the Commanders. Uh, What is the holy grail for so many of us as fans of this football team now known as the Commanders? Bell reported that Dan Snyder is, quote, very much on the minds of some fellow NFL owners who would go as far as trying to force Snyder from their ranks. End quote. Uh, OK, But here's the most significant aspect of Jared Bell's reporting. He spoke with other NFL owners. You know, it's one thing to hypothesize or to say that Dan Snyder is on thin ice with other NFL owners. That we have heard before. It's another thing to actually have quotes from other NFL owners. Now, these quotes are anonymous quotes, okay? That's very important here. But we do have quotes. We have a good number of quotes. Uh, Bell quoted one NFL owner as having said, "quote we are counting votes. End quote. How about that? We are counting votes. Uh, that's a reference to any ouster of Dan as commander's owner needing the approval of 24 of the NFL's 32 teams. Bell referenced one NFL owner as having, quote, told USA Today Sports that the brewing anti-Snyder movement is significant And was before the latest allegations surfaced. So when you hear latest allegations, that, of course, is a reference to the alleged financial impropriety. Uh, Continues Bell, uh, the owner who requested anonymity due to the sensitive nature of the matter described a session during the last league meeting in late March in Palm Beach, Florida, that included Commissioner Roger Goodell and owners when several owners openly expressed their angst, end quote. So according to Jarrett Bell, Dan Snyder's status as commander's owner was a topic, perhaps an informal topic, but still a topic at the NFL's annual league meeting in late March. Uh, Bell reported regarding the aforementioned alleged financial impropriety that one NFL owner said, quote, if that happened, I think that's the nail in the coffin. End quote. Uh, the alleged financial impropriety, remember, includes Dan and the team, performer team employee Jason Friedman having kept ticket revenue that was supposed to be shared with other NFL teams. Uh, Jarrett Bell reported that an NFL owner said, quote, there's growing frustration about the Washington situation and not over one issue, but over how much smoke there is. I think everybody's getting tired of it. End quote. So there's a lot in this USA Today report in terms of quotes from NFL owners. Again, they are anonymous quotes. And what all of these quotes suggest is that NFL owners are turning on Dan Snyder. Not the first time that we've heard this, but we now have more specifics regarding this. The first that we heard of NFL owners turning on Dan Snyder was from Pro Football Talks Mike Florio on Super Bowl Sunday on February 13th. Florio during NBC's pregame coverage for Super Bowl 56 said, quote, I'm told for the first time ever, there is a sense among ownership that the time may have come for Daniel Snyder to move on. End quote. So that was something that Florio said. Um now he did say it during NBC's pregame coverage for the Super Bowl, so that's not an insignificant spot to say something like that. But if you know Mike Florio, you know that he despises Dan Snyder. Uh, In a lot of ways, Florio despises the team. I have called him fake news Florio for a while because a lot of what Mike Florio has said over the years regarding the team just has been biased, if not not true at all. So you have to take anything that Mike Florio says regarding Dan Snyder and the team with a grain of salt. But that said, it's not like Mike Florio isn't well-connected. It's not like Mike Florio doesn't know his stuff, okay? I think he does know his stuff. I do think, though, that he is extremely uh, anti-Dan Snyder and anti-The Commanders. But, okay, Mike Florio said what he said on Super Bowl Sunday. Well, now we have this USA Today report in which we have a number of anonymous quotes from NFL owners You know, Florio just spoke of what he had been told. Jared Bell actually had quotes from NFL owners. I cannot emphasize this point enough. Once you as an NFL owner have lost the support of the other NFL owners, you're done. Okay? It's as simple as that. You're done. The club that is NFL owners is one of the most exclusive clubs in the world. I'm not overstating things when I say that. And once the other members of the club decide that you're no longer worthy of being in the club, then that's it. You're out of the club. You know, it's a lot like the mafia. Being an NFL owner is like being in the mafia. You're a made guy until you aren't a made guy. And as is the case in the mafia, once the other made guys, once the other NFL owners turn on you, you're done. You're finished. You know, think the, uh, the Abe Vigoda character, Tessio, in the movie The Godfather. Think the Joe Pesci character, Tommy DeVito, in the movie Goodfellas. Think the Vincent Pastor character, Big Pussy, in the HBO show The Sopranos. All of those guys were made guys who got offed, who got whacked. Why? Because the other made guys turned on those made guys. The commissioner of the NFL, Roger Goodell, does not run the NFL. That is one of the biggest misnomers in sports. All of the attention and all of the focus that get placed on Goodell are misplaced. Goodell works for the owners, he gets paid by the owners. He is a puppet for the owners. He does the owners' bidding, he takes bullets for the owners. The people who truly run the NFL are the owners of NFL teams. People like Jerry Jones and John Mara and the Roonies and Robert Kraft. Those are the people who truly run the NFL. Those are the people who truly decide who stays and who goes when it comes to NFL ownership. And if those people have soured or are souring on Dan Snyder, then he's done as owner of the commanders. And that Jared Bell in this piece for USA Today has quotes from NFL owners. That's a big deal. I mean, unless you think that Bell just made up these quotes, this is a really big deal. NFL owners speaking to a reporter and telling him, again, anonymously, that Dan Snyder is in trouble. Now, a take that I have read and heard a decent amount is some version of, well, we keep hearing that Dan Snyder is in trouble as owner of the commanders. Let me know when he's actually out. He'll never be out, etc. cetera. Uh, you can always tweet me at Al Galdi. Here are some tweets that I received over the weekend. Tweet from Tony. There's a story like this every four months. Tweet from Return to RFK. Oh, please. Why would the other 31 care enough to act? Well, let me address these tweets. So regarding there being a story like the USA Today report that came out On Saturday afternoon, every four months. uh, Well, there have been exactly two major reports suggesting that Dan Snyder truly is in trouble as owner of the Commanders. The first report was what Mike Florio said on Super Bowl Sunday. The second report is this USA Today report, which, yes, has come out about four months after what Florio said. So if you want to say that we get a story like this every four months, okay, but we've only had two of these stories. All of the other stuff has been scandal stuff that perhaps has suggested that Dan Snyder might eventually be out as owner of the Commanders, but has in no way said that he's actually in trouble as owner of the Commanders, i.e., that the other NFL owners are turning on Dan. Yes, there has been a lot of Dan Snyder stuff out there over the last two years, going back to July 2020. There's no question about that. But You have to be specific about what has been out there. You have to categorize exactly what has been out there. And, you know, taking a step back here, something like ousting Dan Snyder as an NFL owner is a big deal and takes time and requires momentum and, you know, the building of a coalition so that the necessary 24 votes are accumulated. Ousting Dan Snyder as an NFL owner doesn't happen overnight. So it's not going to be this quick thing. You're not going to hear about it, and then two days later, it's done, okay? Like, no, this is a gradual thing. This is a process that takes time. If, in fact, this is what's happening here, we still don't know. But just because that Dan Snyder hasn't yet been ousted as owner of the commanders doesn't mean that he can't be ousted as owner of the commanders or that he won't be ousted as owner of the commanders. Things that have never happened before never happen until they actually happen. And then the thing has happened. You know, think about the name Redskins going away. For years and years and years, people talked about, oh, the name's going to change. And people said, no, it's not changing. And as time went on, it felt more and more like the name wasn't going to change. And then George Floyd got murdered and everything changed. And all of a sudden, just like that, poof, the name Redskins was gone. So something that has never happened before doesn't happen. And then it finally happens. And then it's actually happened. So keep that in mind when it comes to Dan Snyder being ousted as owner of the Commanders. Now, as for this idea that the other 31 NFL owners don't care enough to oust Dan Snyder, Uh, well, first of all, these quotes from NFL owners in the USA Today report would suggest otherwise. But put those quotes aside. The other NFL owners ousting Dan Snyder would be about one thing, and that one thing is a very simple thing. Money. The reason that the other NFL owners would turn on Dan isn't because he's, you know, a bad person (laughs) or that he has presided over, if not engaged in, a moral activity, okay? None of that matters to the rest of the NFL, okay? The reason that the other NFL owners would turn on Dan is money. Money matters to the NFL. Money matters to the other NFL owners. As Randy Moss once said, straight cash, homie. Straight cash, homie. Yeah, straight cash, homie. That is what would fuel the other NFL owners turning on Dan Snyder. Dan Snyder owns an NFL team in a top 10 television market. The Washington, D.C. television market is a top 10 television market. Uh, Dan's team has lost major sponsors. Dan's team for the 2021 NFL regular season it was dead last in the league by miles in home attendance. The team should be generating much more revenue. Than the team is generating. The team should be making a lot more money than the team is making. You know, the commanders in Montgomery County, Maryland, Fairfax County, Virginia, and Loudoun County, Virginia have three of the richest counties in the country. There is so much wealth and disposable income in the Washington, D.C. area. There are so many major businesses and companies in the Washington, D.C. area that the team is having the business struggles that the team is having is a joke. And I promise you that other NFL owners look at that and say, this is a joke. We should be making a lot more money with the franchise in Washington. Heck, just think about the Anheuser-Busch thing. We in March learned that Anheuser-Busch had decided to no longer sponsor the Commanders. Anheuser-Busch had been one of the team's biggest corporate sponsors. Anheuser-Busch is the official beer sponsor of the NFL. And as of last check, sponsored 26 NFL teams. 26. There are 32 teams in the NFL. Anheuser-Busch sponsored 26 of those teams, but not a single one of those teams is the Commanders. Budweiser and Bud Light are produced by Anheuser-Busch. FedEx Field for years, as many of you know, had the Bud Light Party Pavilion. Uh, Commanders insider J.P. Finley of NBC Sports Washington in March reported that the team's deal with Anheuser-Busch, quote, was worth at least $4 million annually per NFL and team sources, and quote, just the loss of Anheuser-Busch alone is enough to make the other NFL owners look at Dan Snyder sideways. Now throw onto that everything else. The workplace misconduct scandal, the financial scandal, Congress investigating these scandals, the ownership turmoil that has resulted in all kinds of things being leaked and played a major role in the team changing its name from Redskins. Because remember, it was that statement from FedEx that played such a huge role in the name Redskins going away. July 2nd, 2020, quote, we have communicated to the team in Washington our request that they change the team name, end quote. And of course, now former Skins minority owner Fred Smith is the chairman, president, and chief executive officer of FedEx. He founded FedEx in 1971. That statement 100% was a function of the ownership turmoil involving Dan Snyder. Put all of this together. And if you're the NFL, you're like, for what do we need all of these headaches? Okay? The NFL doesn't need Dan Snyder. The NFL has never needed Dan Snyder. You know, usually in sports, a person with major baggage or a person who is a giant pain gets repeated opportunity because that person is very good or is very productive. You know, think uh, Antonio Brown. Dan Snyder somehow has lasted for 23 years as an NFL owner, despite having done a woeful job as owner of his team, both in terms of actual football and in terms of finances. Now, in fairness to Dan, he, in his initial years as Redskins owner, was viewed as creating new revenue streams and or maximizing existing revenue streams. But those days are long gone, man. Okay, those days are long gone. And so if you are the NFL, what is the upside in continuing to put up with Dan Snyder as an owner? All of the scandals, all of the controversies, all of the bad public relations Congress pestering you. What is the upside in continuing to put up with all of this? You know, a theory has been that Dan knows of too many skeletons in the NFL's closet and would start leaking things like crazy if the other NFL owners tried to oust him as owner of the commanders. Uh, All of that may well be true. But the NFL is richer than Dan. The NFL is mightier than Dan. And especially if these suspicions about Dan having a cash flow problem are true, the NFL ultimately would win any kind of a battle with Dan Snyder. Don't forget about this too. Uh, we on February 10th had the NFL essentially throwing Dan Snyder under the bus regarding Congress's investigation into the workplace misconduct scandal. We on February 10th had multiple media outlets obtaining a letter from the NFL to the two members of Congress who have been leading congressional involvement in in the team's workplace misconduct scandal, Representative Carolyn B. Maloney and Representative Raja Krishnamurthy. Uh, the letter featured the NFL acknowledging that an e discovery vendor used by Wilkinson Steckloff, the NFL hired firm leading the investigation, possessed approximately 109,000 team documents collected in the case. The league wrote that the vendor couldn't turn over the documents unless the commanders consented. Quote, because of its concern that it could be sued by the team or its owner, end quote. Also wrote the NFL in the letter, quote, the NFL promptly directed the team to provide its consent to the vendor, but the team repeatedly has refused to do so, end quote. Now, Dan Snyder denied these claims through his lawyer, Jordan Siebe, but this whole thing was the NFL throwing Dan Snyder under the bus to Congress, i.e., don't blame us, blame Dan i.e. a major sign of NFL owners turning on Dan Snyder. So we are starting to really pile up here signs and indications that the other NFL owners are turning on Dan. And again, if in fact that's happening here, Dan ultimately is going to be done. Now, look, do I know with certainty that Dan Snyder is going to be ousted as owner of the commanders. No, I do not. You cannot be certain of that. Okay. Dan has survived too much for too long for any of us to be certain that he's going to end up being ousted as owner of the commanders. However, there's enough here that you can't be certain that he will not be ousted as owner of the commanders. To me, the only thing that's for sure is that nothing's for sure. Up next, I'm talking Nationals. My thoughts on the Nats losing two or three games at the Milwaukee Brewers over the weekend, which included major changes to the Nats lineup on Sunday afternoon when the Nats, coincidence or not, uh, had a great offensive game. We'll get to that and much more after this. Well, we all want to be healthy, but it's not easy to eat healthy. And let's be honest, it's not cheap to eat healthy, especially with inflation right now. And so that's why you should try Factor. Factor is an affordable meal delivery plan that provides you with delicious and healthy food. Whether you're trying to get or stay lean or you're trying to put on muscle, Factor gets the job done and saves you hours per week in that you don't have to worry about food shopping, cooking, or doing dishes. Factor offers 30 meals per week. You can choose from a variety of new meals every week so you'll never get bored. Each Factor meal arrives pre prepared and ready to eat in two minutes. Yes two minutes. You can't beat this. Trust me, I eat factor meals. My favorites have included the keto chorizo chili, the Murray pork tenderloin, and the Santa Fe bowl. All of them delicious. And understand that factor meals are put together by registered dietitians and expert chefs who work hand in hand to create meals with nutritious ingredients. You're going to love eating factor meals, and you can save $120 just by being a listener of this podcast. Here's what you do. Visit go.factor75.com slash 120 and use the code galdy 120 to get $120 off. Yeah, you heard that right, $120 off. That's go.factor75.com slash 120 and use the code galdy 120 to get $120 off. Give Factor a try. Eat well and save yourself time and money. Visit go factor75.com slash GALDI120 and use the code GALDI120 to get $120 off. You got to try Factor because fitness starts with food.
0: We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed.
1: Well, there is feast or Famine, and then there are the 2022 Nationals. Uh, they are a bad team, yes. Their offense overall has been bad, yes. But the Nats are capable of, like, erupting offensively. And erupt they did on Sunday afternoon as the Nats won at the Milwaukee Brewers 8-2 to avoid a three-game sweep. Nats manager, Davey Martinez, if you would.
2: I'm proud of her boys.
1: Yes, Davey, the boys actually hit on Sunday afternoon. It was nice to see that. So the Nats got worked over the first two games of their three-game weekend series at the National League Central leading Brewers. Friday night, a 7-0 loss. Saturday night, a 5-1 loss. Uh, That game left the Nats as having scored two runs or less in each of the team's previous eight losses. And so for Sunday afternoon's game three in the series, Davey Martinez shuffled his lineup, most notably moving Caber Ruiz up to the number two spot, moving Juan Soto to the number three spot, and moving Josh Bell to the number five spot. And the Nats on Sunday afternoon erupted for eight runs on 14 hits and a walk, went six for 12 with runners in scoring position. Now, was the new look lineup the reason for the eruption? Uh, Probably not. Uh, You know, Davey has been tinkering with his lineup's throughout the season, but whatever, the results were good. And so consider this now with the Nats. Uh, Like I said, they have scored two runs or less in each of the team's previous eight losses, but also with the Nats, they have scored at least seven runs in seven of the team's last eight wins. This bad Nats offense is actually capable of being quite good. The problem is the offense isn't good often enough. And so the Nats haven't been winning nearly enough So far this season, uh, the Nats this season now are 14 and 28. That is the second worst record in the majors. And the Nats' run differential this season is minus 50. That is the fourth worst run differential in the majors. Uh, So, Juan Soto, uh, he on Saturday night admitted to not being himself right now. And that was an interesting admission from Juan Soto. You know, you think about Soto, right? You think about a happy, jovial player. Uh, he has not been so happy. He has not been so jovial here lately. He has not been himself lately. You know, one of the great things about Soto is that he basically has never been in a slump. I'm not sure that you can even say that he's now in a slump, but he has not been himself here lately. Uh, Soto on Saturday night as an ad starting right fielder and number two batter, 0 for three with a walk. Uh, he in the top of the third grounded into a meek 1-6-3 double play for the second and third outs. That game left Soto with his OPS for the season having fallen by 77 points since the start of games on May 6th from 927 to 850. And Soto, after the game on Saturday night, said, quote, I've been feeling kind of weird. I've been working a lot on my swing. End quote. Uh, Well, Davey Martinez on Sunday afternoon moved Soto to that number three spot as a starting right fielder. And he did have a two RBI hit. Now, he went one for five, but he had a two-run single. Uh, Soto in the Nats' six-run fourth had a two-run single to right center field for an 8-0 Nats lead. Soto still is not totally right, but at least he did have the two RBI hit uh, on Sunday afternoon. Also not right right now is Josh Bell. Uh, man, has he cooled off. Uh, Bell was the Nats' starting first baseman at all three games in the series. Bell was the Nats' number four batter in games one and two. He was their number five batter in Game Three, and he really struggled. Bell over the three games at the Brewers, 0 for 12 with a hit by pitch. Even in the 8-2 win on Sunday afternoon, during which a lot of nats got in on the action, Bell went over. Uh, he went 0 for five, left four men on base. Josh Bell now over his last five games is 0 for 19 with one walk, and Bell has not hit an extra base hit. Since May 7th, he was so good over the first month of this season, he has really come back down to earth over these last few weeks. Uh, Nelson Cruz, of course, has not been good for the Nats so far this season. He's been the Nats' single biggest offensive disappointment. He was the Nats' starting DH in all three games in the series. He was the Nats' number three batter in games one and two. He was the Nats' number four batter in game three. And he, over the three games, did go five for ten, so that's good. Uh, but all of the hits were singles, and that's not so good. Uh, Nelson Cruz continues to barely hit for any power so far this season. Uh, Cruz on Sunday afternoon, two for three with an RBI single and another single. He also suffered a sprain right ankle sliding into second base. But Cruz now this season is slugging a mere 296. It's not good. You know, Nelson Cruz is supposed to be slugging over 500, not under 300. And yet that is the case here this season. Uh, with Nelson Cruz, and now he's banged up. This is a guy in his age 41 season. Uh, Cruz on Sunday afternoon in the top of the fourth had a single on which he was thrown out at second base trying to stretch the hit into a double, Uh, concluding a stretch of the Nats beginning what was a six-run fourth inning with eight consecutive hits before recording it out. That was some uh, offensive display by the Nats in that six-run fourth on Sunday afternoon, but For Cruz, uh, his single in the inning came on a fly ball into no man's land in right field, and he then got tagged out at second base trying to stretch the hit into a double, and Cruz, in sliding into second base, suffered this sprained right ankle. He, in the top of the seventh on Sunday afternoon, got pinch hit for by Riley Adams, and Adams ended up delivering a pinch leadoff single that went off the Brewers' third baseman Jace Peterson. Uh K-Bell Ruiz, uh, he is the Nats starting catcher and number two batter on Sunday afternoon. One for five with an RBI double. Uh, Ruiz in the Nats six run fourth had an RBI double to left field for a six nothing Nats lead. You know, Ruiz this season now has an on-base percentage of 351. So him being moved up in the lineup makes sense. Uh, you know, he hasn't hit for much power. He's only slugging 390. But that 351 on-base percentage is quite good. I mean, ideally, your best hitter is batting in the number two spot, and the Nats' best hitter, in theory anyway, is Juan Soto. But a guy like Kiber Ruiz batting higher in the Nats lineup is not without merit. Ruiz on Saturday night as the Nats starting catcher and number six batter got on base three times. He went two for three with two singles and a walk. Uh, The guy who really stood out for the Nats offensively in this series at the Brewers was Lane Thomas. Uh, The Lane train was back up and running over the weekend. Uh, Lane Thomas overall is not having a good season, but this is a guy who was quite good for the Nats during his time with them last season. The Nats got Thomas from the St. Louis Cardinals last July 30th. straight up. For John Lester in his 502 ERA and Thomas over 206 played appearances for the Nats last season had an OPS plus of 134 that's terrific 100 is league average uh, OPS plus is just OPS that's adjusted for a player's league and home ballpark and an OPS plus of 134 is quite good that's what Lane Thomas put forth last season during his time playing for the Nats uh, like I said Thomas this season hasn't been too good, but Thomas over the weekend was back to his 2021 self. Uh, Thomas was a starter for the Nats in all three games in the series. He on Friday night, as an Nats' starting left fielder and number six batter, went one for four with a triple. Now, the triple was not without controversy, so Thomas in the top of the seventh, a one-out triple off the center field warning track. Uh, he ended up being thrown out at home and by a good bit. And by the way, yet another instance of a Nats player, being thrown out at home plate. This was another bad send by the Nats third base coach, Gary DeSarcina, but the Nats did get screwed on this play. There was no review of the play. There should have been a review on the play because the Brewers catcher, Omar Narvaez clearly blocked Thomas's path to home plate. Uh, There was irony here because Lane Thomas had no Lane to run to home plate. Uh, Davey Martinez during his postgame session with reporters said that he was told that there was no review of the play because the Nats did not ask for a review within the allotted time of 20 seconds. Uh, Davey disputed that, uh, but the Nats ended up not getting the review and Lane Thomas ended up being tagged out at home on uh, what could have been an inside-the-park home run, but was not. But then Thomas on Saturday night hit an actual home run. Uh, He is the Nats' starting center fielder and number 8 batter, two for four with a solo homer and a single. And then Thomas on Sunday afternoon as the Nats starting center fielder and number eight batter, two for four with two RBI doubles. Thomas in the Nats' one-run second, had a two-out opposite field RBI double over the head of Brewers right fielder Hunter Renfro, who came in on the ball of a hit, gave the Nats a one nothing lead. And then Thomas in the Nats' sixth-run fourth, had an RBI double to left field For a 3-0 Nats lead, Uh, Lane Thomas was a force in this series, and as you may have noticed, he was the Nats starting center fielder in each of the final two games in the series. Victor Robles ended up starting just one game in the series, uh, also starting just one game in the series, Osiris Escobar. Uh, He and Robles started on Friday night and then did not start again in the series. So two guys who have struggled big time offensively, each only got one start in this series. Uh, D-Strange Gordon who was the Nats starting shortstop and number nine batter in each of the final two games in the series. He on Saturday night went two for three with two singles, did get caught on an attempted steal of second base. And then Strange Gordon on Sunday afternoon, one for four with an RBI bunt single. He in that Nat six run fourth with runners on second and third, had a beautiful RBI bunt single to the right side, for a 4 0 Nats lead. Yeah, the Nats in that six run fourth scored the six runs without hitting a single homer, but the Nats in that six run fourth had a hit and run play, also had two RBI bunt singles in back to back fashion, in fact, because after Strange Gordon's RBI bunt single came Cesar Hernandez's RBI bunt single. Cesar Hernandez on Sunday afternoon. As a Nats starting second baseman and number one batter, two for four with an RBI bunt single, another single and a walk. His RBI bunt single in that Nats six-run fourth came with runners on first and third and uh, to the right side for a 5 nothing Nats lead. So some small ball for the Nats in putting up the sixth spot in the top of the fourth on Sunday afternoon. Uh, the Nats starting pitching in this series loss. At the Brewers was decent in games one and three, but bad in game two. And guess who the starter was in game two? Uh, Patrick Corbin. Uh, yeah, shock face, I know. Uh, Eric Fetty was an ad starter in game one, that 7 nothing loss at the Brewers on Friday night. He was fine. He you know he did his Eric Fetty thing of putting a lot of guys on base, but the final line was decent. Two runs in five and two-thirds innings. It's hard to complain too much about that. Uh, he gave up four hits, a homer, a double and two singles he issued three walks he had four strikeouts uh he threw 97 pitches over the five and two-thirds innings he began his outing by tossing five scoreless innings although each of the first four innings was not a clean inning and then Fetty in the bottom of the six allowed two runs uh Fetty over eight starts this season and has an ERA of 4.08. Uh, Not great, not what he was drafted to be. Remember, the Nats took Eric Fetty with the number 18 pick in the 2014 MLB draft out of UNLV, but you could certainly function with a number four, number five starter having an ERA of 4.08. Uh, Patrick Corbin, uh, he is basically non-functional at this point. He struggled uh, in game two of this series at the Brewers. The 5-1 loss on Saturday night, five runs in five innings. Uh, Not good. Uh, He gave up eight hits, two homers, and six singles. He issued a walk and a hit by pitch. He only recorded three strikeouts. Uh, He threw 79 pitches. Uh, Corbin, in the bottom of the first, allowed two runs. And he got off to an atrocious start to his outing. He, On the very first pitch that he threw, gave up a first pitch opposite field leadoff homer to Andrew McCutcheon. To right center field for a one nothing Brewers lead. Corbin then gave up a first pitch single to Luis Arias to left field. Corbin then gave up another single, this one to Kristen Yelich through the right side of the infield. Corbin then gave up an RBI sack fly to Hunter Renfro for a two nothing Brewers lead. And Corbin then issued a two out hit by pitch of Keston Hiora, despite him having been down in the count at one point oh two. So a really bad first inning for Corbin. He then was a lot better. But then he, in the bottom of the fifth, allowed three runs. Uh, He retired the Brewers' first two batters of the inning, but then allowed five consecutive Brewers to reach base, beginning by giving up a two-out first pitch solo homer to Luis Urias to center field for a 3-1 Brewers lead. Corbin then gave up a two-out infield single to Christian Yelich. Corbin then gave up a two-out opposite field single to Hunter Renfro through the right side of the infield. Corbin then issued a two-out five-pitch walk of Mike Brasso to load the bases, and Corbin then gave up a two-out first pitch two-run single to Keston Hiora through the left side of the infield for a 5-1 Brewers lead. So, you know, Patrick Corbin has had some good outings in recent weeks, but the bad still far outweighs the good, and Patrick Corbin, over nine starts this season, has an ERA of 660 and a whip of 169. Not good enough, okay? Here you have Patrick Corbin, right, in season number four of a six-year, $140 million contract that he signed as a free agent in December 2018. This is his age 32 season. He was bad in 2020. He was even worse in 2021, and he is even worse now in 2022. I mean, you can dress this up however you like. ERA of 660, is an ERA of 660. Okay. That's really bad. And yet that is what Corbin has given an ad so far this year over nine starts. Uh, Aaron Sanchez was an ad starter in game three of the series. He was decent. I mean, my big complaint with Sanchez is it would have been nice for him to have lasted longer. Sanchez in the 8 2 win at the Brewers on Sunday afternoon, allowed two runs in five innings. The Nats had a nice lead in this game after that six-run fourth inning. That's where up 8 nothing in this game. You know, that is a recipe for your starting pitcher to go out there, throw strikes, work quickly, get outs, and save the bullpen, especially considering that the Nats' next scheduled off day isn't until June 6th. Well, Sanchez didn't last beyond the fifth inning. Uh, he gave up seven hits, a homer, and six singles. He issued two walks. He recorded just one strikeout and boy, did he have a hard time throwing strikes. And usually, Aaron Sanchez does do a good job of throwing strikes. He did not do a good job of throwing strikes on Sunday afternoon. Sanchez in this game threw 89 pitches. Just 46 of the 89 pitches were strikes. He threw 46 strikes versus a whopping 43 balls. Uh, he, in the bottom of the fifth, allowed the two runs that he gave up. Uh, the two runs came on a one-out homer, three consecutive one-out singles, and an RBI force out off the bat of Andrew McCutcheon. Uh, Sanchez gave up a one-out solo homer to Tyrone Taylor to center field to cut the Nats' lead to 8-1. Uh, you know, we've talked about Aaron Sanchez. He's in his age 29 season. The Nats in March signed him to a minor league deal. He's a reclamation project. But consider the following now with Aaron Sanchez. So he, over six major league starts for the Nats this season, has an ERA of seven-sixteen. He has not been good. But man, does this guy not strike anybody out? Aaron Sanchez has totaled 27 and two-thirds innings. He, over those 27 and two-thirds innings, has accumulated a mere 13 strikeouts. You know, the industry standard now is for a pitcher to average a strikeout per inning. Aaron Sanchez is averaging less than half of a strikeout per inning, as he has, again, 13 strikeouts in 27 and two-thirds innings. Max Scherzer used to get 13 strikeouts in one game. Aaron Sanchez has totaled 13 strikeouts over six games for the Nats so far this season. Uh, The Nats' bullpen over the weekend was good. Basically, he had one bad outing from one guy, who was Austin Voth. Austin Voth on Friday night in the bottom of the eighth was a disaster. He allowed five runs, got just one out. Uh, He gave up the five runs on a leadoff single by Kristen Yellich, a full-count double by Rowdy Telez, a five-pitch walk of Andrew McCutcheon, a bases-loaded two-run single, By Hunter Renfro on a 1 2 pitch and a 2 out, 3 run homer by Tyrone Taylor to left field. But also for the Nats in that game was Victor Arano in the bottom of the sixth, facing two batters. He gave up a single but then recorded the third out. Uh, Carl Edwards Jr. tossed a scoreless bottom of the seventh despite beginning it with back to back walks as the Nats then recorded a triple play. Yes, we had a triple play in this series by the Nats. Uh, Edwards issued a leadoff six pitch walk of Jace Peterson despite him having been down in the count at 1.02, then issued a five-pitch walk of Colton Wong, but Edwards then induced a first-pitch 5-4-3 triple play off the bat of Luis Arias, and the triple play was basically exactly how you would draw it up, grounder, to the third baseman, Michael Franco stepped on third. He did then make a low throw to second baseman Cesar Hernandez, but Hernandez made a nice catch of the baseball and then got the ball to first baseman Josh Bell to complete the triple play. That was a really nice job by the Nats. Uh, and then Paulo Espino on Friday night, he and the Brewers five run eighth faced two banners, got the final two outs. Uh, Saturday night, three Nats relievers combined for three scoreless innings. Rasmo Ramirez tossed a scoreless bottom of the sixth. Steve Ciszek tossed a scoreless bottom of the seventh. And Josh Rogers tossed a scoreless bottom of the eighth. And Sunday afternoon, four Nats relievers combined for four scoreless innings. Uh, Josh Rogers tossed one into third scoreless innings. Steve Ciszek in the bottom of the seventh, faced three batters and got two outs. Kyle Finnegan tossed a perfect bottom of the eighth with two strikeouts. And Tanner Rainier tossed a perfect bottom of the of the ninth inning. So with the exception of the Austin Voth debacle on Friday night, the Nats bullpen did a nice job in this series at the Brewers. Uh, Some injury notes for the Nats, and we'll start with the good news. uh, As finally, Steven Strasburg and Joe Ross are set to begin minor league rehab assignments. We've been waiting and waiting on this, and finally, we're going to be getting this. Uh, Each guy will pitch on Tuesday night. Strasburg for low A Fredericksburg, Ross for double A Harrisburg. You know, it's easy to forget that Strasburg and Ross are still on the Nats because they've basically become like ghosts here. But yeah, Strasburg and Ross are still on the Nats. And the hope is that the Nats can get something out of these guys this season, and especially in the case of Strasburg moving forward, given that after this season, he still has four years left on his seven-year $245 $245 million contract. So, Strasburg last July 28th underwent season ending surgery to address neurogenic thoracic outlet syndrome, TOS, which may well be the single worst pitching injury there is. Uh, this season is Strasburg's age 33 season. This is the third season of that aforementioned 70 year, $245 million contract to which he was resigned. In December 2019, as we all know, the contract so far, a complete disaster. Strasburg in the 2020 season made just two starts for the Nats. Strasburg in the 2021 season made just five starts for the Nats. Uh, Now, David Martinez on March 23rd in national spring training in West Palm Beach, Florida, said that the goal for Strasburg this season is for him to make, quote, 20 to 25 starts. Uh, That's almost certainly not happening, given that we're already more than a quarter of the way into the Nats 2022 season. But the hope would be that he can at least make, say, I don't know, 15 to 18 starts this season. I mean, you know, make the starts, not get hurt again, pitch in a halfway decent way, and then maybe just maybe be able to be a part of the Nats rotation in 2023 I mean you're not trading Steven Strasburg okay not with that contract not with his injury history and not with him having barely pitched over the last two plus seasons so the idea here is try to get something out of him and maybe eventually if you get something out of him and he's staying healthy then maybe you might be able to trade him with you having to pay a decent portion of that contract but for now he's untradeable so you just got to do your best you certainly help him out you support him and you see if you might be able to salvage something with Steven Strasberg, but this is a brutal thing that he's coming off of surgery to correct neurogenic thoracic outlet syndrome. Uh, Joe Ross, he on March 7th underwent orthoscopic surgery to remove a bone spur in his right elbow, but keep in mind that with Ross, there's still a chance that he'll need a second Tommy John surgery. Uh, the ants. last August 15th placed Ross on the 10-day injured list with a partial tear of his right UCL. The decision was made to not undergo surgery at the time. Uh, Ross in July 2017 underwent Tommy John surgery. It's interesting with Ross. This is his age 29 season and his final season of team control. He's set to be a free agent this coming off season. So there's a lot of uncertainty, not just with Joe Ross from a health standpoint, but with Joe Ross from a contractual standpoint. Uh, So Joe Ross might need Tommy John surgery. And unfortunately, Quarter Keyboom does need Tommy John surgery. This would be the bad Nats injury news from the weekend. Uh, and the news is uh, more bad news for Keyboom. We on Friday afternoon learned that Keyboom does need Tommy John surgery for his right elbow. Uh, the Nats on March 21st placed Keyboom on the 60-day injured list with a right elbow UCL sprain and a right flexor mass drain. So we now have yet another major setback for Carter Uh This season was to have been his age 24 season, the Nats took Keyboom with the number 28 pick in the 2016 MLB draft, and he just has not worked out. And now his 2022 season ends up being a loss season. Uh, kiboom over his three major league seasons, 2019 through 2021, over 414 plate appearances, has a batting average of just 197, an on-base percentage of just 304, and a slugging percentage of just 285. I mean, he has been a bust so far, and now the guy has to come back from Tommy John surgery. Now, position players have a much easier time coming back from Tommy John surgeries than pitchers do. But, you know, Keboom's a third baseman, and he wasn't exactly stellar defensively to begin with. If now you have to wonder about his throwing off this Tommy John surgery on his right elbow, I mean, the surgery is not doing him any favors, especially as he still is trying to find himself as a major league player here. Um, you know, the Nats were supposed to have Carter Keyboom. As their number one third baseman for this season, I think that time is done in terms of going into a season and saying, well, we're gonna give Carter Keeboom a shot here. I think moving forward, if Keyboom can somehow work out, great, okay? But in the meantime, the Nats have got to come up with alternative plans at third base because Carter Keeboom cannot be counted on. Certainly not from a performance standpoint, and you know, with him now needing to undergo Tommy John surgery from even a health standpoint. Next up for the Nats, a three-game series against the best team in the National League, the NL-leading Los Angeles Dodgers at Nationals Park. Game one, Monday night at 7.05, Johanna Doan will be the Nats' starting pitcher. Game two, Tuesday night at 7.05, Josiah Gray will be the Nats' starting pitcher. And game three, Wednesday afternoon at 4.05, Eric Fetty will be the Nats' starting pitcher. And of course, among the players on the Dodgers, former Nats shortstop Trey Turner. Well, if you've been listening to me talk Orioles for a while, you likely know that I have had a mantra for the O's in their rebuild. Uh, it is a rebuild that has gone on for a while. It is a rebuild that has resulted in a lot of losing, okay? But all along, I have maintained the following mantra, pain now, pleasure later, pain now, pleasure later. When Mike Elias became the Orioles executive vice president and general manager in November 2018, he took over a franchise that was a mess. Uh, the O's had been atrocious in the 2018 season, going a major league worst 47 and 115, with a major league worst run differential of minus 270 in the final season of the Buck Walter, Dan Duquette era. Elias took over a team that was way behind when it came to analytics, was way behind when it came to player development, was way behind when it came to the international market. Elias took over a team that had had major dysfunction behind the scenes because Buck and Dan couldn't stand each other. Mike Elias came to the O's of having worked in the front office of the Houston Astros, who engaged in a total teardown and total remaking of themselves in an analytically inclined way. And that teardown and remaking of themselves had resulted in great success, cheating scandal aside. Well, the O's have been a bad team for years now. Uh, The losing started in September 2017. The losing really does continue to this day. But finally, mercifully, the fruits of the total teardown and rebuild are being seen at the major league level. And we, over the weekend, had a tremendous occurrence, the likes of which O's fans have been waiting for, and the likes of which O's fans have been oh so deserving of, given all of the losing over the last five years. The O's, on Saturday morning, called up catcher Adley Rutschman. Adley Rutschman has made his Major League regular season debut. The phenom finally has arrived. The anticipated became official on Saturday morning as the Orioles at 8 a.m. Eastern announced that they had selected the contract of Adley Rutschman from AAA Norfolk. Adley Rutschman, the O's took him with the number one pick in the 2019 MLB draft out of Oregon State. He is the number one prospect in baseball, per MLB pipeline. This season is Rushman's age 24 season, and him being with the O's on Saturday and Sunday was part of what very much ended up being a feel-good weekend for the O's as they won two of three games against the Tampa Bay Rays at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. Friday night, an 8-6, 13-inning win. Saturday night, a 6-1 loss. But Sunday afternoon, a 7-6-11 inning win as the O's notched their third win in four games with each of those wins being a walk-off win. Joe Angel, the O's, are back in the win column. And the Orioles again in the win column. Yes, Joe, the win column. Uh, Don't forget, Anthony Santander. In the Orioles' 9-6 win over the New York Yankees at Oriole Park at Camden Yards this past Thursday afternoon, had a walk-off three-run homer. This is something else. O's have won three of four. Each win, a walk-off win. You had two extra inning wins over the Rays over the weekend. Uh, the O's this season now are 17-25. and 25. There's a lot to get into with this series win over the Rays, but the number one item clearly is Adley Rutschman. So Rutschman in March suffered a right tricep strain. He, this season in the minor leagues, played for three different teams, the High a Aberdeen Ironbirds, the AA Bowie Bay Sox, and the AAA Norfolk Tides. And Rutschman was great. Uh, he, with those three teams this season, accumulated 82 plate appearances. He, over those 82 plate appearances, had an OPS of 9.42, uh, not bad. Uh, and Rutschman in his first major league series was not bad. Uh, Rutschman in the six-one loss to the Rays at Oriole Park at Camden Yards on Saturday night was the Orioles' starting catcher and number six batter. He went one for three with a triple and a walk. Yes, his first major league regular season hit was a triple. Uh, Rutschman in the bottom of the seventh had a one-out stand-up triple to right field. And then Rutschman in the 7-6, 11-inning win over the Rays at Oriole Park at Camden Yards on Sunday afternoon was the Orioles starting DH and number five batter. He went one for five with a single as he in the bottom of the fifth inning had a full count single despite having been down in the count at one point, one two. point, 1-2. This was Mike Elias on Sunday morning on what the calling up of Adley Rutschman to the majors means for the state of the Orioles
3: i think everyone in the company um, ownership on down is uh, very pleased with the foundation um, the the processes that have been laid the infrastructure that we have across our organization right now and it's just about building and growing from here but we've got blue skies ahead of us we've got a number one farm system we've got uh, a young, talented major league team. We have uh, play payroll, payroll flexibility. We're past the pandemic and there's gonna be more and more people coming into the ballpark. We're gonna be renovating this place. Um, there's a lot to look forward to. I'm very excited. I feel like the, um, the most difficult, arduous part of the work that we've had to do is, is kind of behind us. I, I think we've got a lot of challenges ahead of us in keeping guys healthy. Um, making the right draft picks, making the right act free agent signings, bringing the right players in here, all that normal stuff that every baseball team faces. But I think the challenges that we had that were unique to the Orioles, not having international analytics, um, modernizing player development, all that stuff, that's, that's uh, in a really good spot. And uh, we have a pipeline underneath the, the young, talented team you've seen right uh, in front of us. But we've just got to make a lot of smart decisions going forward, and um, you know, we know that's not easy either.
1: Yeah, it was great to hear Mike Elias speak as he spoke right there. Now, the O's calling up Adley Rutsman on Saturday morning clearly was strategic in that the move was announced in the morning. So as to build anticipation and also attendance uh, for the game at Oriole Park at Camden Yards that night, although the official attendance ended up being just 17,000. 573. But also on Saturday were several other notable occurrences. Uh, The O's on Saturday afternoon reinstated Ryan Mountcastle from the 10-day injured list, which he had been on since May 13th due to a left wrist slash left forearm strain. And Mountcastle in the 11-inning win on Sunday afternoon as the Orioles starting first baseman and number four batter drew a one-out six-pitch walk in the Orioles' two-run third, had a leadoff full count homer in the bottom of the fifth, and had a leadoff single on a 1-2 pitch in the Orioles' two-run ninth. He did commit a fielding error in the Rays' one-run seventh, but Ryan Mountcastle was back for the O's over the weekend. Uh, The O's on Saturday afternoon announced that they had agreed with starting pitcher John Means on a two-year contract for the 2022 and 2023 seasons, avoiding arbitration. Uh, The O's on Saturday afternoon recalled reliever Mike Bauman from AAA Norfolk. Uh, Bauman is the Orioles' number 13 prospect, for MLB pipeline and we on Saturday evening in Baltimore had the 2022 prank sticks. So there were all kinds of things happening with the O's and with the city of Baltimore on Saturday. On what ended up being Adley Rutschman Day uh in Baltimore. Now, with this series against the Rays beyond the Adley Rutschman stuff, uh we had Heroics here for the O's. Uh Austin Hayes, how about what this guy did? in that 7-6, 11-inning win over the Rays at Oriole Park at Camden Yards on Sunday afternoon. Pinch, two out, two-run single in the bottom of the ninth to tie the game at six, despite having been down to the count at one point one-two. point, 1-2. You had Mr. Walkoff in this series, Rugned Odor. Uh, he in the 8-6, 13-inning win over the Rays at Oriole Park at Camden Yards on Friday night. Smashed a walk-off two-run homer to right field in the bottom of the 13th inning, to end the game, which lasted for 4 hours, 22 minutes. The homer also ended the Orioles' 15-game regular season losing streak to the Rays, who had owned the O's recently. Uh, But that was some homer by Odor when a projected 405 feet per stat cast. Odor entered the game as a pinch hitter in the bottom of the 11th inning. You know, we have not talked much about Rugnet Odor. The O's on November 30th announced having signed Odor to a one-year contract. This season, is his age 28 season. Uh, Odor came to the O's of having really not done all that well for years now. Uh, Odor hasn't finished a season with an OPS plus over 100 since the 2016 season. Uh, Rugned Odor, yes, is the guy who in May 2016 started a famous on-field brawl by punching The Toronto Blue Jays, Jose Bautista, squarely in the face. Odor was with the Texas Rangers at the time. But Rougedad Odor came through for the O's on Friday night. And then he came through for the O's again in their other win in this series. Uh, Rougedad Odor in the 7-6, 11-inning win over the Rays at Oriole Park at Camden Yards on Sunday afternoon. Had two doubles. He had a leadoff double on an 0-2 pitch in the bottom of the second And he had a two-out RBI double in the Orioles' two-run third. And he made contact to score the winning run, uh, which scored on what went down as an RBI fielder's choice grounder in the bottom of the 11th inning. And scoring the winning run was, of course, Adley Rutschman. So a lot of good stuff from Orioles position players in this series. Also, a lot of good stuff from Orioles relievers in this series. Uh, Some very good performances By Orioles relievers in this series win over the Rays. Keegan Aiken in the 13-inning win on Friday night tossed two into third scoreless innings, lowering his ERA for the season to 133. Nick Vespi in that 13-inning win on Friday night. In his Major League regular season debut, two scoreless innings with three strikeouts for the win. Uh, The O's took Vespi in the 18th round of the 2015 MLB Draft. I love stories like this one. Uh, The O's this past Tuesday afternoon selected the contract of Vespi from AAA Norfolk, and then the O's on Saturday afternoon optioned Vespi right back to AAA Norfolk. But you know that he'll be back. He did a great job on Friday night. Uh, Mike Bauman, who I just made mention of, he in the 6-1 loss to the Rays at Oriole Park at Camden Yards on Saturday night allowed one run in three and two-thirds innings. And how about the overall work of the Orioles bullpen in the 11-inning win on Sunday afternoon? Six Orioles relievers combined to allow three runs, two earned, in 11 innings with 12 strikeouts. Why is that? Well, the Orioles starting pitcher on Sunday afternoon didn't record a single out. Uh, Spencer Watkins was the Orioles starting pitcher on Sunday afternoon, but he, in what ended up being a four-run Rays first, began the game by allowing three consecutive singles and then was struck by a line drive off the bat of G-Man Choi on an RBI single. And that was it. Uh, Watkins was taken out of the game. He suffered a right forearm contusion. You know, if there was a negative for the Orioles in this series, it was their starting pitching. It was not good. Uh, Tyler Wells In the 13-inning win on Friday night, three runs in four and two-thirds innings. He gave up just two hits, a homer and a single, but the homer was a one-out, three-run homer by Mike Zanino in the top of the fifth. Uh, Wells also issued two walks, and Wells over 79 pitches through just 44 strikes, Versus 35 balls. He did record four strikeouts. And then the biggest starting pitching disappointment for the O's in this series was Kyle Bradish. He started the Adley Rutschman Major League Regular Season debut game. So that was a nice thing you had going on. Adley Rutschman making his Major League Regular Season debut. And the first big call up for the O's this season, Kyle Bradish serving as the Orioles starting pitcher. But Bradish in that loss on Saturday night, five runs. In five and a third innings, he gave up five hits, two homers, both of which were by Randy Rosarina, and three singles. A Braddish issued two walks into a wild pitch. He did have five strikeouts. He threw 91 pitches, 57 strikes versus 34 balls. But when it comes to Orioles starting pitchers, we also should say this, and this is the perfect way to cap our segment here of Adley Rushman Weekend for the O's. Grayson Rodriguez on Sunday afternoon continued to dominate. Grayson Rodriguez, a.k.a. Grayrod, he and a start for the AAA Norfolk Tides on Sunday afternoon was tremendous once again. A 14-3 win at the Charlotte Knights saw Grayson Rodriguez allow two runs in six innings with nine strikeouts versus one walk. Grayson Rodriguez now this season for Norfolk over nine starts has an ERA of 270, has a whip of 0 Point nine nine, and has a strikeouts per nine innings of 13.71. Those numbers are outstanding. MLB Pipeline ranks Grayson Rodriguez as the number four prospect in baseball and as the number one pitching prospect in baseball. Yeah, the O's and Adley Rushman have the number one overall prospect in baseball and in Grayson Rodriguez have the number one pitching prospect in baseball. If you go by the MLB pipeline rankings, uh, the O's took Rodriguez with the number 11 pick in the 2018 MLB draft out of a high school in Texas. The next big Orioles call-up figures to be Grayson Rodriguez. And if an ERA at 270, a whip of 0.99, and the strikeouts per nine innings of 13.71, all at the AAA level, don't scream that Grayson Rodriguez is ready to be summoned to the major league level well, then I don't know what does. Uh, This is his age 22 season. Very excited to see Grayson Rodriguez make his major league debut for the O's sooner rather than later. So of all of the losing and all of the tanking by the O's in recent years, no, they haven't accomplished anything just yet. Yes, there is still a lot of work to be done, but man, if you're an Orioles fan, it's nice to have These good things to be talking about and watching and enjoying right now. Next up for the O's, an eight-game road trip. A three-game series at the Major League-leading New York Yankees, followed by a five-game series at the Boston Red Sox, as the O's are in the midst of a stretch of 15 consecutive games against the American League East. Game one at the Yankees, Monday night at 7.05, Jordan Lyles will be the Orioles' starting pitcher. Game two at the Yankees, Tuesday night at 7.05, Bruce Zimmerman. Will be the Orioles starting pitcher in Game Three at the Yankees Wednesday night at 7:05. Tyler Wells will be the Orioles starting pitcher. And that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at AlGaldi. You can email me the AlGaldi Podcast at yahoo.com. Tuesday Show Episode 321 will feature. Lots on the Commanders as Monday is day one of the team's first batch of OTA practices this offseason. We'll see if any news or items of interest come from that. Uh, Also, I'll talk Nationals and Orioles. The Nats on Monday night at 7.05. We'll begin a three-game series against the National League-leading Los Angeles Dodgers at Nationals Park. The O's on Monday night at 7.05. We'll begin a three-game series at the Major League-leading New York Yankees. Have a great rest of your Monday, and I'll talk to you on Tuesday.
0: at MVMT.com.